Please open your Bibles to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 39. If needed, Bibles are available under your seat. Now hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and in no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. It has been a good weekend so far. We had about 60 to 70 men show up on Friday night, hang out with us, and uh, I basically talked from 7 p.m. to midnight. And then I got up the next morning and we had about another 60 or so guys show up here and I talked for an hour and a half straight. And so I woke up this morning and my voice is even extra scratchy and so I hope it holds out and I apologize um, if it sounds a little grovelly and gravelly uh, this morning. Um, Now, before we get into the text of scripture this morning, I need to do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, What we are about to do together is special and unique. The Word of God has been read to us, and now we are about to open it up together, ask the Spirit to use me, and I'm going to do my best to explain it to you so that you can understand what's going on, and that is how God is, and God is going to speak to you. God speaks to us through His Word. Jesus says in our text today, quote, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The primary way God speaks to us today is through his word. So the preaching of God's word is one of the most important aspects of our service this morning, and it's one of the most formative hours of our entire week. God is training us this morning to recognize his voice. He's speaking to us, and for some of us today, this will be the first time we have ever heard God's voice. God does this every single week. It is a miracle of God. Now, by way of illustration, how many of us, if Jesus were to literally come down from heaven right now and arrive here in person this morning, how many of us, if Jesus took the stage this morning, how many of us, in the middle of whatever Jesus would say, would go, I think i got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) How many of us would go, you think? You think there's still coffee out there? I think I can go. I'm going to go see if there's some coffee out there, right? I know there are emergencies, and Lord knows I do not want anyone to pee their pants this morning, okay? I'm not trying to rebuke anyone this morning. I simply want us to honor the preaching of God's word in an appropriate manner. Parents, I would appreciate your help in this. Specifically, please tell your teenagers to hold it until after the sermon. When they get up, they distract everyone around them, even in the balcony. 
The balcony steps sound like bass drums to everyone underneath them, okay? Uh, Listen, I love having kids in the service. We're all for having kids in the service. And I know that sometimes our young kids get distracted and begin to act up and they need to be taken out for a little attitude adjustment, all right? I lived through a few of those when I was their age, okay? Please do not feel judged or condemned if you have to do that. That's totally good. That's right and good. It needs to be done so they learn to sit still and listen to God's word. Now listen, I've been preaching for 20 years and it really doesn't distract me too much anymore. Last week, there was a lot of people moving around. My mic was acting up and I barely noticed any of it. The staff had to tell me what was going on. So I was in the zone last week and I'm not mad at anyone, all right? So I just want to remind us of the importance of this time together and want to make sure it's as least distracting as possible for those who are trying to hear God's voice this morning. So I love you and I'm thankful to be your pastor. Uh, now let me pray for us and we can, get, we can get into God's word together. God, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we get to be here in this room together, that there are many Christians spread all across the globe that are hiding in fear this morning. There are Christians in the Gaza Strip hiding in fear this morning, Lord. There are Christians in China hiding in fear, and they don't get to do what we get to do. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not take it lightly. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us ears to hear. We thank you for calling us and bringing us here. And so, Lord God, we, I just ask that you would open our ears, make us attentive, that you would help me as I'm tired and a little worn out, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. Father God, would you do a miracle of grace this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, <clears throat> amen. Well, have you been with us during our study of the Gospel of John, one of the things that keeps coming up over and over again is that no one has a mild reaction to Jesus. People either fall at his feet and call him Lord, or they reject him and call him a lunatic. Last week, the Jewish leaders said Jesus was demon-possessed and or insane. That was their reaction to Jesus. Well, today, Jesus gives his final sermon in the Gospel of John, his final sermon to the crowds. And for the third time in John, the Jews will pick up stones and try to kill him, right? Jesus just doesn't learn his lesson, apparently, right? He says some things, they pick up stones to try to kill him, he does it again, and he does it again. Jesus is okay with public rejection. Jesus is okay with being on the wrong side of the crowds. He wants to speak the truth and not just what's comfortable. Well, one of the things that people say all the time today in our culture is that Jesus actually never claimed to be God. There's a, I guess you could call it a conspiracy theory that says it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD that Christians decided to treat Jesus as God. Well, that's just dead wrong. And as you will see in our text today, Jesus claiming to be one with God is what got the Jewish leaders so riled up and they hated him so much and will eventually get him killed. His claims today will get him nailed to a Roman cross and crucified horribly, public, naked, embarrassing, shameful death. Well, let's dig into our text. We're in chapter 10, verse 22. I've kind of got a lot of historical work and then some theological work we're going to do today. It's going to be a little bit different, so hopefully you will stay with me. Um, verse 22 Again, this is Jesus still speaking about being the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. All right, we've got a couple historical details here. Now, this is actually important. What is the feast of dedication? Well, it's an important detail that most of us probably have no idea what is going on, because we don't know Jewish history that well. Well, let's do a little history. In Exodus, God tells Moses to build him a tabernacle. It was a big tent. It was a mobile house for God, a place where God's name to dwell and God's spirit could come in. And it was his Shekinah glory would come inside this tent and literally lights would turn on and people would, could tell that the spirit of God was there. And when 
he gives Moses these instructions. He gives them very intricate details on how he wants it built and what he wants put inside. One of the things that God wants put inside are 10 candelabras or menorahs. You know what a menorah is? It is a large candle. It had like a cup in the middle and then it had six candlesticks, three on the left and three on the right. Aaron, the high priest and his sons, one of their jobs as working in the temple or working in the tabernacle, one of their chief jobs was to keep those candles lit 24-7. All night long, every day of the year, the candelabras or the menorahs had to stay lit. God wanted his house to be a house of light, where the light never goes out. Well, in 957 B.C., Solomon finished the construction of the Jewish temple. So it was to replace the tabernacle as a permanent home for God and for the things that God wanted to put in there where they could offer right sacrifices and they could offer right worship to God. Again, those lampstands, those 10 lampstands got moved into the temple so the light never goes out. Well, because of the Jewish people's idolatry and disobedience, they turned away from God. The temple was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, when he conquered Jerusalem. He absolutely destroyed the temple so the Jews could no longer worship God rightly anymore. And they were carried off into Babylon. Well, about 80 years later, and if you were with us a couple years ago, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah. This is going to make some sense to you. About 80 years later, Ezra and Nehemiah and some Jewish exiles come out of Babylon, come out of Persia, and they feel called by God to go back and rebuild the temple. They want a place to worship God rightly again. This is called the second temple, and it was not near as impressive as the first. They, they finish it, and the elders weep, <laughs> right? I thank, I thank God that no one weeped when they came into our new building. <laughs> that would have been really depressing. I, like, I tried harder than that. Like, we, were, we put a lot of work in it, and they put a lot of work in it, and it was, it was a good temple. The second temple was good, but it, it just paled in comparison because when Solomon was ruling, Solomon had all kinds of wealth, all kinds of power. He could get the best craftsmen, the best wood, the best stone, the best gold from all across the known world at the time and have it shipped in and build this fantastic structure. Well, the second structure was not near as impressive. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took the gold lampstands, you know a Persian king ain't going to leave those golden lampstands, right? He took them, he melted them down, they brought them back, they stole all the lampstands. So when they built the new temple, the second temple, they only could afford one candelabra, one menorah. So the new temple had one, but again, they still tried to keep the lamp lit 24-7. That was a key feature of the temple. Well, here we go. It's a little bit more. We're we're moving closer to Jesus here. In 169 BC, a Syrian ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that's a name, he is sick and tired of the Jewish people. Okay, The Jewish people are subjugated at this point, but they were still a religious minority that were allowed to use this second temple to worship their God. But he always seen them as kind of a usurpers. They didn't worship the Greek gods, and he was a worshiper of the Greek gods. And so finally, he, got, he was a warrior, and he got fed up and tired of these Jews. Now, his name, Antichias uh, Epiphanes, it means in the Greek, God manifest. Okay, so he had a little bit of a God complex, right? So what he did was in 169, he took his army into Jerusalem. He killed 80,000 Jews, and he sold 80,000 more into slavery. He went into the temple. He knocked over the lampstand. He blew out the lamp. He stole the lamp, and then he brought pigs into the temple and sacrificed them on the altar. This was sacrilegious. This defiled the temple. This brought about, eventually a few years later, brought about what is called the Maccabean Revolt, all right? Thankfully, well, there were some real Jewish men in the countryside, and they were like, we're not going to put up with this. And so they started this kind of guerrilla movement. They started training men and recruiting men, and they said, this guy has defiled our God. He's defiled our temple, and we can't let it go. And so what they started to do in the beginning was they started 
like raiding towns and attacking Greek officials, far from direct Seleucid control. But eventually it developed a proper army capable of attacking the fortified cities. So in 164 BC, the Maccabees recaptured Jerusalem. They cleansed the temple. They repurified the temple. They built a new lampstand and rededicated the altar on, the, on 25 Kislev. That was the time. Now, after this, so the Jews are all celebrating. Judas of Maccabee and his brother come in and they push out, um, you know, they, they cleanse the temple and they, they bring about a renewal of Jewish religion. So they wanted to mark this day. They wanted to celebrate this day from, from then on. So from this day on, they had an eight-day celebration they called the Feast of Dedication, or maybe you've heard it called Hanukkah. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. When Judas Maccabee came in and recleansed the temple. So that's where we find Jesus today. Jesus is in the temple. It's winter. It's Hanukkah. It's the feast of dedication. The lights have gone out, but the lights have been restored. And Jesus Christ, as the light of the world, the true light of the world, enters into the temple. Okay? That's what's going on. That's kind of behind the scenes this morning. Jesus is at the temple where Judas Maccabeus had ultimately gained his victory and ushered in appropriate and proper worship of God. And so now Jesus is there to create a little revolution of his own. He's going to renew this religion that has fallen into its own apostasy and has wandered from the worship of its own God. So in other words, Jesus is stepping in the temple and he's trying to get the Jewish leaders uh, attention that they've wandered from the right worship of God, right? They've wandered from the right worship of God. He's there to restore the right worship of God. And just a little hint as we get into the text, he's the son of God entering into the temple saying, this is why you built the temple. The temple is built for me in one sense. I am now the true and better temple. I'm the one you have to go to to meet with God. So that's where we find ourselves in verse 23. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to, you, said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Now, this word Christ, if you didn't know, that is not Jesus' last name. Okay, Christ means the anointed one. Christ was this loaded term. All right, think of a hyperlinked text. You're reading an article online. That, that word comes in in blue. What does that mean? That means you can click on that word and go to another article or go to some other texts. When people use the word Christ, that word was hyperlinked to all kind of prophecies in the Old Testament a final king that would come to restore Israel, a proper savior that would come to forgive people of their sin, the proper proper prophet who would come and speak God's word to them. All right, I could go on and on and on and on about what the Christ means. So these guys are like, hey, listen, it's the anniversary of the Maccabean revolt. Are you another Maccabee? Like, are you ready to, we're tired of this Greco-Roman rule. Are you ready to overthrow these Romans? And let's, let's let You know, God rule from Jerusalem again. Are you the Messiah? Are you the King of Kings? And Jesus doesn't direct them, doesn't answer them directly, though he does answer them very clearly, because what they had in their mind of the Christ was not the Christ that he was. He wasn't going to be another Judas Maccabee. Look at verse 24, or 25. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. So Jesus is saying, I've already told you this. I've already answered this question. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now think about the works that Jesus has already done. He's turned water into wine. He's, right, he's he's stilled storms. He's done all kind of impressive things. He's healed people, right? He's done all kind of, he's like, look at the stuff I've done. Remember the blind man that I healed? The works testify that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God, right? Isaiah prophesies that when the Messiah comes, he will make the blind see. He will make the lame leap, right? Jesus is like, I'm already doing, I'm already fulfilling all that. Why don't you see what's going on here? Verse 26, 
But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, this is a very interesting statement. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Do you see the flow of Jesus' argument here? He doesn't say, you don't believe, and therefore you're not a part of my flock. He says the exact opposite. He says, you're not a part of my flock, therefore you do not believe. I was talking to a brother about this at the men's event Friday night. Every single Christian is saved by faith. Right? Faith is when you take your faith and you put it on Jesus and you say, I believe in Jesus. Every person walks by faith. You put your faith somewhere, in something, in some person, in some view of the world. Everyone walks by faith. Even atheists walk by faith. Everyone walks by faith. We must put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Savior, our Messiah. But what many of us don't understand is that God does all the work of salvation before we put our faith in Christ. What? What? I hear it. I could frame it up this way. Okay, if you, if you have faith, where does your faith come from? Where did you get your faith? How did you come to believe in Christ? How did you come to see Jesus as he truly is? What did you do in your heart to desire God? Paul says in Ephesians 2 that at one time we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were all, Think about this. We were all spiritually dead at one point in our life. How is a spiritually dead person to muster up faith? Can you imagine? You walk into your living room, bad sight, but like, right? Your husband's there laid dead on the couch. Oh, terrible thought, right? Right? And you say, honey, have faith. If you only have faith, you'll be saved. This is the analogy we're working with. This is what Paul gives us, that every single one of us are spiritually dead. I'm going to tell you, what use is faith to a spiritually dead person? Faith is a tool, right? Think of a hammer. What use is a hammer to a dead person? If only you had some energy in you. If only you had some life in you. If only you had some ability in you. See, how can a spiritually lifeless person exercise their faith? The biblical answer is they can't. God must work in them first. This is why the reformers said that we were saved, listen, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Do you hear what comes first before faith? Grace alone. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 together. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's where we all began. In which you once walked. We were dead and we were walking. Yes, we were spiritually dead, but we were physically walking around. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So listen guys, when we were living in the passions of our flesh, what does that mean? Doing whatever we wanted to do. There was nobody above us. We, we, we determined what we wanted to do with our money. We determined what we wanted to do with our time, right? Tuesday was all our own, right? Sunday was all our own. We did what we want to do. That's called walking in the passions of your flesh. And if you're walking in that way, you are spiritually dead. Cut off from God. Like the rest of mankind. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Look at this, verse 4. Oh, some of the best words in the Bible. But God. But God. It does not say, but you believed. It does not say somehow this dead person spiritually resurrected himself. Like this spiritual dead person, I can do it, and got up off of the table. 
If you're spiritually dead, you have no power to resurrect yourself. You have no power to believe in Christ. You have no power to change. It takes God from the outside of you bringing you back to life. Look, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Hold on. Do you see this? God walks into the living room, sees, sees the dead person on the table, on the couch, and loves that person. That spiritually dead person offers nothing to God, is not useful at all. He doesn't go, look at that super gifted person. I need that guy on my team. He's dead. He offers nothing good. But what does God do? He loves him. Why? Because God is love and God puts his love on us first. And that love is a resurrecting love. That, that love is an energizing love. That love brings with it the spirit of God that gives us faith to believe. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, just in case you didn't get it, he'll say it twice. Even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Who made us alive? God, our faith didn't do it. We didn't do it. God made us alive together with who? Christ. And by grace, look at that. By grace, you have been saved. This is what grace is. Grace is God moving towards you and giving you spiritual life when you were spiritually dead. When you had nothing to offer God, you did nothing good for God, you didn't deserve it one iota, God moved towards a spiritually dead person and puts life inside of them. And then what's the, what's the first thing we do? We put our faith in Christ. That's the first thing we do. So many of us, we only have this idea of, yes, we gotta believe, and we gotta put our faith in Christ. And that is the right answer. But if you want, it's like the math teacher, right? And you, you, you get the right answers, but then she says, but show your work. Right? I'm showing you God's work here that's behind your salvation that maybe you've never thought about it before. So the next question is, who does God give this saving grace to? Well, Jesus answered for us right there. He says, those who God chose to be in his flock. Before the foundations of the world, God chose people for Jesus to save. Jesus said it already. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Or no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Who does the Father draw? One way to say it is the elect. The other way to say it is the sheep in Jesus' pasture. Jesus says, you don't listen, you don't hear, because you're not one of my sheep. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 1. Verse, start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, look, chose us, even as he chose us in him. When did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. That means if you believe in Christ, he chose you before he created the world. His choosing, I didn't know, the world is kind of old, right? You guys weren't around then. You had no faith then, right? I wasn't a preacher then, right? He chose us before we were even born in our mother's womb. Keep reading. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Why did he do this? Because God is love. In love, he predestines us for adoption to himself. Think about that. Before he created the world, he planned your adoption. Your name, your adoption papers. He wrote your adoption papers into the family of God before he created the world. That means before you sinned. Some of you, you've sinned and you oh, I blew it, I blew it. God couldn't love me. He adopted you before you started sinning. He knew everything about you. He knew you were going to be a moron. Okay, he knew it. And he chose to love you. He's like, I, I can take the spiritually lifeless and bring him life. I can, take, I can take a moron and make him wise. Right? If I can make the dead walk, right, I can make an ignorant person wise. to be predestined to adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Look, according to the purpose of his will. 
Maybe, anytime we start talking about this, people start getting it. Well, what about free will? What about God's will? I'm more concerned about God's will than I am my free will, okay? I want God's will. God adopted you by his will. I have, that should blow your mind. You're not that great. I'm not that great. And he adopted me, right? He wasn't looking down the lines of your DNA, right? Man, I, I need a guy who's 7'2 with some athletic ability on my team. He's not, I need an IQ above this point, right? He got the bottom of the barrel. He chose the bottom of the barrel. I don't know why, but he did. Paul tells us that in Corinthians. He chooses, chooses what is foolish in the world to make the wise look foolish. Why did he do this? Verse 6, look at this. To the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, so no man can boast. Right? We can look at our resources we can look at our station in life. We can look at our own morality. We can look at the way we lived our life, the degrees we've earned, the success in business, and we can say, look what I have done. And why? Do, if everybody just lived like me and, and handled their finances like me, this whole world would be a better place. And what does that do? That builds us up in pride. But when God saves us by nothing but his sheer grace, and we don't deserve it at all, who gets the glory for that but God alone? to the praise of the glory of his glorious grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been, look, predestined, according to the purpose of him, Jesus, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you're saved, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 8. Verse 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things, are, I'm sorry, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, this word knowledge, this word foreknew or knowledge in the Bible, it means more than what we think. It doesn't mean he just knew your name, like he knew of you, right? To know in Genesis, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. There is an intimate knowing here. When it says that God foreknew, for those whom he foreknew, it means he foreloved. He foreadopted, he foreembraced, he chose. Here we go, keep, keep going. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, and here's, this is called the golden chain of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Remember, many are called, but few are chosen. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him or the Father draws him. This is what God does. He predestines, and then he calls, and he calls those who are in his sheep. And his sheep come and hear his voice. They all obey. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what that's, this, this means. Salvation from eternity past to eternity future is all in God's hands. This is why it says salvation is from the Lord. Now why am I spending so much time on this? Well, because it's incredibly important understanding that God chose us, gave us the faith to believe in him, means that our salvation is all from him and we are not contributing anything to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. We don't muster it up. We don't save ourselves through our faith. Jesus saves us 
And here's the gospel bomb that once it goes off in your soul, you will never stop worshiping Jesus. If Jesus did all the work to save us and we contribute nothing, we are saved solely by the grace of God. That means we can never lose our salvation. We are eternally secure in Christ. And that should fill us with incredible confidence, incredible hope as we walk through the difficulties of life. Look how Jesus says it in verse 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you see the confidence in that statement? Jesus isn't saying, well, some people hear my voice. Some of my sheep might hear my voice, and and if they choose to believe in me, then they'll believe and then they'll follow. No, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. He knows every single one of his sheep, and they follow me. Fact. Sheep follow shepherds. Christians follow Jesus. I, verse 28, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear the confidence in that statement? I give them eternal life. There's no might. There's no maybe. They will never perish. There is no might. There is no maybe. Will we die in this body? Yes, we will unless Christ comes back soon. But it's, this death is not really death for us because we step into the, the eternity. We step into the new heavens and the new earth, right? And we put on, we will eventually put on different flesh. We will live forever with Christ. They will never perish. And look, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has no squirrely sheep that slide into his hands and then slide their way out. He is a perfect shepherd. Right? I think too many American Christians have this idea that Jesus is the shepherd that's got his sheep pen and he just calls to a bunch of random individualistic sheep and some sheep choose to exercise their will and wander into Jesus' sheep pen. And then sometimes those sheep go, ah, this isn't really for me anymore, and they wander right back out. That's not the analogy Jesus uses. First off, the way Jesus gets sheep is he goes and he picks them up and he throws them over his shoulder and he says, you're my sheep now. And they're like, but, 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 but. He's like, you're my sheep now. (laughs) That's exactly how he saved the apostle Paul. He did not offer, on the road to Damascus, show up and go, here's Saul, I have an offer for you. He says, you're on my team now. You've been on the wrong team your whole life. Go to this place, hide, wait, and I'm going to tell you what to do with the rest of your life. Saul's probably like, do I get a vote? No, see, Saul wasn't an American, right? He didn't live in a democracy. He, he didn't know about, oh, we, we think we have rights to vote now. Like, he's like, God showed up, knocked me off my horse. I guess I'll do what God says. Jesus threw him over his shoulder, Brought him back, says, you're in my pen now. That's the analogy. And this is why it's so important. Not one will Jesus lose out of his hand. He is a competent shepherd. He is a competent savior. He didn't go on the cross that some people might believe in him and might get saved. He went to the cross and he saved people definitely. See, the reformers had this little slogan, and it was called TULIP, and it was a way to remember the gospel, and T stood for total depravity. It means we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then U stood for unconditional election, which means God elected us. He chose us. He predestined us, not for anything based on what we could do. And then L meant limited atonement. And we don't really like that word today, limited. But what it means is Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he paid for the sins of his elect. He paid for the sins of his sheep. And then we have I, and I stands for irresistible grace, that God is going to come to his sheep and going to give them the gospel, and it's going to be irresistible for them so that dead person gets up off the couch and walks and goes, I'm at church, why am I here? And they hear the gospel, and then P, 
perseverance of the saints, that every single Christian will make it to eternity, that God will make us holy, that God will make us righteous, because our salvation is dependent upon him. Now, many people don't like this tulip understanding, but the opposite of that is what we call daisy Christianity. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. I'm doing really good this week. He loves me. Didn't fight with my wife. He loves me. Didn't yell at my kids. He loves me. Yelled at my wife. He loves me not. Yelled at my kids. He loves me not. Our salvation ebbs and flows based upon our own performance. In our minds, we're in Jesus' sheep pen and then we're out of Jesus' sheep pen. We're in it, we're out it. We're in it, we're out it. And our affections go up and down based upon this daisy Christianity. No, Jesus says the Father has given him sheep that God's put them in his hand and he will not lose one of them. And yes, that includes our children, praise God. If our salvation was dependent upon our consistent faith, Jesus could not truthfully say that no one will snatch them out of his hand because apparently the devil snatches them out of his hand all the time. Because we could walk away from him and then what? Satan is taking them out of Jesus' hand. See, every time we sin, every time we sin, we, before we sin, the first thing we have to do is become functional atheists. We have to act like God's not there. We have to act like God hasn't told us what to do. We have to act like God has not given us a standard. We have to act like God's not a judge. We have to act like God's not truth. We have to act like God's not watching. We have to become functional atheists before we actually sin. We are saying with our lives in that moment, I don't believe God is here. I don't believe he's watching. I don't believe he cares about me. Even the strongest Christians have moments when they just don't believe. Our faith falters sometimes. And that can cause us to think that God's love for us and his attitude to us is constantly in flux. How difficult to be God and his attitude be completely dependent upon us. He's up in heaven, like, really happy, angry, happy, angry. <laughs> like, with a bit, millions of people, billions of people across the earth, his attitude's just... <laughs> no. He is eternally happy with Christ. And everyone who is in Christ, he's eternally happy with you. Jesus says he will not lose even one of his sheep. Why? Because our salvation is based upon Jesus' sovereign grace. And that means once he saves us, nothing in all of creation can separate us from his love. And that's exactly Paul's point in Romans 8 when he said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, if you think that God is sad, happy, sad, happy with you all the time, you won't have confidence walking in this world. You won't be more than a conqueror. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Once you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from Christ. God's grace saves us. Faith is our response to God's grace. God's grace comes first. Think of it like this. When you're carrying your, if you've got babies, when you're carrying your babies, what kind of naturally happens when you pick up that little baby and you, you put them on that spot God designed on that hip, you, you got them, right? But what, what do they do? Right? A little gremlin grip. Right? Now, how many, how many, how many, how many parents are like, let's see what we can do? Right? Let's see how strong that grip is, baby. Right? Listen, 
Listen, that child's grip to you, that child's grip to you, that's faith, okay? The father, the mother's hand underneath that, that's grace. That's what's holding your salvation. That's what's keeping you in the sheep pen. God's grace, not your little, your little death grip, right? See, faith is our grip on God. Grace is God's grip on us. We get tired, we might slip and fall, we might lose our grip on God sometimes, but he never loses his grip on us. This is why God gets all the glory in our salvation. We didn't choose him until he opened our eyes to choose him. We didn't love him until he opened our hearts to feel his love for us. We love because he first loved us. Okay, I have eight minutes. Verse 30, we have a long way to go. I and the Father are one. Here's the theology. This, well, that was a bunch of theology right there as well. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. This is Trinitarian, three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all one essence, all one God, distinct in persons, but one in essence. Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, what do you call that? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Wrong judgment, guys. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which which of them are you going to stone me? Then the Jews answered him, it's not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. This is what gets him killed. Blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. You are claiming to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God, except right here where he did it. So tiring. People just do the reading. Do the reading. You being a man, make yourself God. This is why they want to kill him. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I say you are God? So this is from Psalm, and I'll tell my head, I think it's Psalm 82, and it's a lowercase g there. I'm not going to get into all that theology behind that, but if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? So the Jews claim to love the Old Testament, claim to understand the Old Testament. So Jesus here is stepping inside their worldview and go, oh yeah, what about Psalm 82? Remember when it talks about we're all little, little, you know, there's some little case low G gods and now I'm claiming it and you, you say there's something wrong with that? So he's using scripture to justify what he's doing here. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe in me. He's saying, look what I'm doing. Yeah, I know you have a problem with what I'm saying. You have a problem with, I am a man standing in front of you saying I am the son of God. I get you have a problem with what I'm saying, but look what I am doing. Next week, he's going to raise the dead. Why can he do that? Because he's God. Verse 37, if I... Or I'm sorry, 36. Where am I at? 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. See, mark this down. Highlight this in your Bible. Remember this verse. When somebody says Jesus never claimed to be God, bring them right here. Show them. It's in black and white or maybe even red in your Bible. It's right here, plain as day. See, Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. He came and saved us who were lost, right? He found us. He saved us. Our salvation is 100% dependent upon him. If you are here this morning and Jesus intrigues you, if you are here this morning and his words kind of sound good to you, if you're here this morning and you're aware of your own sin, you're aware of your own brokenness, you're aware of that your life isn't, you, you don't know what's going on in your life and you don't know what life is for, then come to Jesus Christ this morning because God has already come to you. You didn't get here by accident. God arranged a million different things that you are not even aware of to get you to show up this morning. It's fascinating to me where, how people hear about us and how people find us and all of the crazy stories that, pe- that people got that people get here. 
And then what happens when they get here? God speaks to them. I'm praying that God spoke to you this morning. And what do you, what do you need to do? What do I need to do? Well, see God's grace, right? See God's grace and respond with faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Follow Jesus. For some of you, that might mean you need to get baptized in the next time we do a baptism. For some of you, that might mean membership. First of November, we're starting our membership classes three weeks in a row, two to four here at the sanctuary. For some of you, that might mean join a missional community with other people who are trying to follow Jesus. We're doing it all together, right? To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow Jesus. Jesus lived in community and on mission. And for those of us who are Christians and we have been baptized, we get to follow Jesus this morning into the Lord's Supper. We get to take the bread that Jesus broke on the night that he was betrayed. He said, this is broke, my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood that was spilled for you, take it and drink it. This morning, Jesus is here. He is here in the meal. He is spiritually present with us. Man, we should eat this meal this morning rejoicing in the grace of God right? He resurrects dead people, gives them grace, gives them life, and then he feeds us. (laughs) Let me pray for us. Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your Son, our Savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In your powerful name we pray, amen and amen.